Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is based at policyforum.net at Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. If you're looking to take your policy career to the next level, you might want to check out our short courses and degree programs. You can find out more at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. We're back after the Easter long weekend and it was definitely unlike any other. Spending most of our time inside and on video calls with friends and family instead of the big family gatherings and Easter egg hunts that we all love was surely not the way we wanted to spend our free time. In our last few episodes, we discussed the impact of COVID-19 on our physical and mental well-being, and we've heard from experts about how we can best cope with the crisis. ANU professor Michael Smithson told us recently about the emerging narrative of hope and how this crisis might make us more adaptable and self-reliant and could improve the way we communicate with each other. On this episode, we want to explore this narrative of hope a bit further and draw out some positives of this unprecedented crisis. And we're going to do this in two parts, with the first here and the second part out tomorrow. And we have got some amazing guests lined up for you. Tomorrow, we're going to take a look at how COVID-19 might help us tackle health inequities and talk through the opportunities this crisis presents to making our systems of governance more efficient. But first, we want to take a look at how the economy might recover and what opportunities might present themselves in a post-COVID-19 world. The crisis has left almost no part of the Australian economy untarnished, with shutdowns affecting countless businesses and putting millions of jobs under threats. It's a damning outlook. But amidst the crisis, there's also the hope that the country could emerge as a fairer, more sustainable society. So in this first part, we want to ask... What might Australia's economy look like after the crisis? And what can policymakers do to ensure that it can adapt to a world that's been reshaped by COVID-19? So to discuss these important questions, we've invited Dr. John Hewson into our virtual pod cupboard today. John, of course, is an honorary professorial fellow here at Crawford School, and he's a former leader of the federal opposition. Welcome, John. It's great to have you. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. How is working from home and the uh, this new socially distant life that we're all living treating you? Well, I think it's uh, it's uh, probably going to be an irreversible change in the sense that people in business and academia and so on are realising that you can do so much more by using Zoom and uh, and other platforms 
um, rather than having to physically attend meetings, which uh, up quite a lot of time. Uh, I organised a conference recently at the ANU, which ran for the most of a Saturday from a nine in the morning till about 4.30 in the afternoon on Zoom, had about 40 participants, and it ran as smooth as clockwork. And a very constructive process. Everyone thought it was a very useful experience. So I think you can see dramatic changes in the way we do business in academia, the way business does it. And I think there'll be a lot more meetings in terms of less face-to-face meetings, I think, a lot more using technology platforms. And that'll change, uh, that'll have an impact on tour- on, on the use of, of planes and, and so on. You know, you can see that the changes, I think, are probably going to be irreversible as, as people use to learn, learn to use this technology much more efficiently. Well, those are all sound like positive changes. And we wanted to make a pod that looks at some of the positives that might potentially come out of this. So let me start by asking, what might Australia's economy look like after the crisis? Is it all bad news or could the crisis be in some way a catalyst for positive changes? Well, it certainly should be a catalyst for positive changes. I mean, they, you know, I think the old expression, never waste a crisis. Well, you know, the government's rhetoric, uh, sort of slogans really, that we're going to snap out or bounce back <laughs> to where we were before, doesn't really resonate very well with either households or, or business in the sense that, um, yeah, our economy wasn't that strong and it was getting weaker. And we had a lot of structural issues before the pandemic hit. You know, we had flat wages. We had record levels of household debt. People were insecure about their jobs. We had uh, very um, low productivity, mounting cost of living. Uh, you know, there, there were a lot, poor savings, a lot of issues which had been building up over quite some time. And, of course, the government has acted quite decisively in response in terms of a an approach to locking down from a health point of view to minimise the spread of the, the virus, but in effect collapsing the economy um, in order, you know, with some compensation, uh, hoping to come out of it, uh, you know, reasonably strongly. But it's difficult to say how we will come out. I mean, we're starting to see some of the forecasters now, uh, reputable forecasters, make statements. The Treasury last couple of days said the unemployment rate might uh, double, go from about 5one to 10% or thereabouts. There have been higher private sector forecasts, but that's an order of magnitude that seems reasonable. That's in the course of this year. Um, we had the IMF overnight saying that uh, we're going to be one of the bottom third of countries in terms of performance. We could see our GDP fall by about 6.7% this year. And on their most optimistic forecast uh, or scenario um, planning, they would We'd get maybe 6.1 of that back next year, but um, we would still have a GDP at the end of next year, which was lower than at the end of 2019. So we're starting to see some numbers come in. Um, the government said virtually nothing about recovery. And, uh, you know, I think the challenges are going to be very real for the government. Uh, when you give some benefits, I mean, in my experience, I sat in the phrase a cabinet. Fraser Government Cabinet for about six years or so, seven years doing budget cabinet. Start in the morning and you'd work all day into the early hours of the next morning, 3 or 4 a.m., doing line-by-line assessments with the advice of the bureaucrats and so on. Where can we cut here? Can Where can we cut there? It was a period of austerity right through the 70s and you never sort of got to where you wanted to go. Uh, you always had a bigger deficit than you wanted. You took temporary measures that became permanent a year later. You know, these sort of change. it was a very, very difficult environment in which to operate. And uh, when you look at how the government might suddenly deal with the financial consequences of this, 
where the budget deficit might blow out to a couple of some of the private sector forecasts are saying a $200 billion deficit uh, with uh, debt rising to more than a trillion dollars. I mean, that's going to cause quite a disruption and a very significant, you've seen a very significant shift in the government's rhetoric. Remember the, not that many years ago, in fact, very recently with the obsession of getting a budget surplus, but the debt and deficits, disaster or crisis or emergency, you know, we don't hear any more of that. Um, we've, uh, we're in it in a way that nobody imagined we'd ever be, and the IMF is saying the worst and most challenging circumstances since the Great Depression. So having said that, I mean, um, you can paint a negative picture or you can say, look, where we are, never waste a crisis in policy terms. We needed a lot of structural reform going into this. Let's take this opportunity of, of reforming the tax and transfer system, of having a national um, uh, productivity strategy, for example, uh, uh, a strategy to rejuvenate agri- uh, manufacturing in this country, uh, uh, accelerate the transition to a low-carbon society in the next two or three decades. Uh, you know, these are real opportunities which uh, are there to be taken, and I think the electorate's in a mood for the government to lead in this, not to sit back and hope that things go back to where they were. Of course, they clearly won't, and I fear that some of the decisions the government has taken will be very difficult to turn around. I use the example, for example, of you give free childcare. <laughs> that is a very big electoral issue. And if you uh, try and take it back in, in part or in whole, um, you'll get a very negative reaction. Of course, it's been a key element of the cost of living. Uh, increasing new start, you admit that those on the unemployment benefit, which is about $15,000 a year, you double it. I mean, why? how can you justify going back? You've admitted that it wasn't adequate. Um, these are going to uh, the wage subsidies, for example. People are talking about universal basic uh, universal income uh, systems and so on. So expectations run away. So what might be a benefit today uh, becomes a right tomorrow and politically difficult. So in those circumstances, I think the government really has to take the opportunity to say, okay, we've got to make some big structural changes here, uh, which are in a medium-term sense. John, you mentioned the idea there of the snapback, and early on in the crisis, Prime Minister Scott Morrison was keen to stress that there will be a snapback where these sort of pre-COVID-19 conditions and policy settings return. But that idea does seem to have taken a backseat recently. Does that signal a potentially positive change in policy and the approach to the post-crisis Australia? Has the government changed its thinking? Well, I think the government's being forced to change its thinking, um, you know, but at the same time, of course, they're ruling out options like any increase in tax, for example. Um, and um, look, there are people, the reputable people were writing before the pandemic hit in the course of the last couple of years, that given the very big expenditure commitments that governments and both sides of politics really had made in sort of Gonski and education in terms of health, um, infrastructure spending, um, defence spending, huge military contracts, and, of course, the NDIS. Through the 2020s, they'd be very big numbers, as well as the personal tax cuts that have already been legislated. So they were saying, you know, you'd need about a 2 to 3 percentage point of GDP increase in the tax burden to cover that. And now you've got a situation where on top of that you've had all this additional spending and bigger deficits and more debt. So the challenge is huge and... and um, Rather than let it drift and hope it gets better or hope you bounce back or snap back, um, I think realistically you should say, look, why don't we use these circumstances to make some significant changes 
in the way we do things. And some of them will happen anyway, but I think the electorate would like to see that you are addressing some of those issues which they know uh, are not consistent with a, with a strong economy. And, um, you know, you can see tax is obviously an issue and transfer system is, uh, has been jolted around. It could be reformed now on the basis of this. But also, you know, the transition to this low-carbon world we've all got to make globally by the middle part of the century. Here's an opportunity to accelerate that process and go sector by sector. What do we need to do to, to, to facilitate the transition in the electricity and power sector? What do we need to do in agriculture? What do we need to do in transport? And they're all opportunities. Um, and what do we do with buildings? What do we do with industrial processes? These are opportunities which um, I think you'd be silly to waste the opportunity to actually make substantial progress and in circumstances where you really are near you hope you're near the bottom in terms of economic performance uh, you try and uh, rebuild a structurally rebuild the economy so you won't get a bounce back next week but you might over the next several years start to see some really significant um, reform and and uh, much stronger and sustainable growth. Yeah, indeed. John, what about the role of expertise? The government has been keen to stress throughout this crisis that it's listening and acting on the best scientific evidence and expertise to guide its decisions. And that's something that many would argue has been largely absent in government responses to climate change, for example, over the last few years. Is there any chance that we might come out of this crisis with a newfound respect and reliance on evidence and expertise? when it comes to policy formulation? Well, as one who joined the political game, if you like, as an advisor to the Treasurer back in the middle 70s, I did so on the expectation that good evidence-based policy would be good uh, government and good politics with a relatively short lag. (laughs) Unfortunately today, short-term politics has really just skewed good policy making, good policy development, good, uh, good policy implementation. Uh, and uh, in a sense, against that background, it is encouraging that they've relied on so-called expert opinion, although, as we've seen, there is a significant division of opinion within the experts. Uh, there's a lot of bureaucratic uh, experts that they've relied on more than some of the private operators. But having said that, I mean, they are tying things to expert advice. And, um, you know, as you mentioned climate, I mean, <laughs> The overwhelming evidence of the climate scientists over many decades has just been ignored. In fact, even worse than that, I think climate scientists and others have been pilloried for taking positions, um, you know, just because they were inconsistent with short-term politics, not because they were in the interests of uh, the the longer-term development of this country. So I do think that there's a chance that, uh, you know, they they will look to ways in which they can get some of this reform done. And I think you know, if if these issues are too important for politics, to short-term politicians, well, maybe we will see some sort of commission structure come out of the um, of the new um, you know national government process. I mean, one of the elements, of course, that's been highlighted there is how our federation works or doesn't work. And uh, you know, there's been a lot of proposals. In fact, New South Wales has an exercise right now trying to look at what needs to be done to reform our federation. Uh, in the context of that, you know, the duplication between the Commonwealth and the states in some activities has been significant and wasted a lot of money. You could have an opportunity here to say, okay, let's do the allocation of responsibilities to one level of government in terms of 
service delivery and in terms of policy development and uh, the other level of government can phase out of that. At the same time, then, that it's a basis for saying, okay, so what's the most cost-effective, simple way to tax to, to tax the community to fund that reformed uh, federation structure? Now, you've got a framework now where you can start to look at some of these issues in a constructive way, and, um, you know, hopefully that's what comes out. And that would all be based or could all be based on the best uh, scientific evidence and, and other evidence uh, available. And, uh, you know, if the government were to say, look, we're going to rely on that evidence rather than play our games, that would be a very significant step forward, I would think. Well, great. That could be a very positive change that could come out of this. But it sounds like a good place to take a quick break. So stay with us, listeners. We'll be back after the break with more from John Hewson. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. John, I want to pick your brains about airlines. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday. Yesterday, there were calls for the government to take a stake in Virgin as, a, as by way of a, of a bailout. Should governments, should the Australian government be taking a stake in industries that are a vital part of our travel infrastructure? Well, I think it, it raises that issue importantly. I mean, we've always valued competition in the airline industry, and it's always been sort of rudimentary. Remember the old days of ANSET and TAA and so on, and the transition from that to where we are, and we lost an airline for a long time, and then Virgin re-emerged. Virgin's never been commercially viable, but, you know, it, is, it, is, it has been building a presence. There's no doubt about it, and it's got a fair bit of customer loyalty through its uh, frequent flyer program and so on. And so the government needs to make a decision as to, you know, in terms of key industries like that, and others would broaden that to beyond uh, airlines, but it's an opportunity to say, well, what do we really want here and to what extent are we prepared to fund it? And you can either, you know, there's a lot of money already being committed to supporting the airline industry, but you've still seen some very large uh, job shedding by Qantas and, and Virgin, and you've seen a lot of cancellation of domestic flights, not only international flights which were locked down, but domestic flights. Uh, you've seen a lot of fallout there. So the government has to make a decision as to whether it's going to fund it in some way, whether it wants to put money into Virgin and become a shareholder or um, become or, or um, lend it money on the basis that when the revenue recovers, it, it pays it back. Um, the difficulty with, you know, if you look at the circumstances of Virgin, I mean, it's predominantly owned by, it is owned entirely by foreign airlines, uh, you know, who have shares uh, 
in 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 it, and uh, a significant percentage of those shares, I think nearly twenty five percent, is held by Chinese interests. Uh, I think you've got Qatar and uh, and and other other major carriers, and uh, even the Virgin part of that is is also in turn owned. Virgin Atlantic is in turn owned by airlines, so it's not an easy thing to say that the government should get engaged as a shareholder in that sort of world. In fact, you'd expect initially a lot of it would be, pressure would be put on the existing shareholders to bail it out. Uh, you know, but, of course, the global airline industry is really in catastrophic circumstances, so it's not an easy time to run those arguments. But, I mean, I think we learnt that governments don't run airlines very well, although you know, putting financial support into an airline may be better to take equity than, than, than just debt. But I'd want to see uh, some limits on on what might happen there. I mean, you don't want that airline to go exclusively into foreign hands. For example, you wouldn't want a Chinese takeover of that airline. And so there'd have to be some focus on on the shareholding limitations, whether the government became a shareholder or not, uh, whether the debt could be converted to equity by at a future stage and, and allow one of those airlines to consolidate its position in Australia. These are big questions. Not the sort of questions I think a lot of people would ever contemplated governments would be facing, but you know it is an essential service. Um, it is a crucial sector. Tourism is a fundamentally important sector. Domestic travel in a country as diverse as Australia is very significant, as well as of course the international travel, uh, which you know will be very hard to open up international travel. I guess as long as the virus is a is a threat, because most of our infection has come from international travellers. Uh, and um, you know cruise ships and so on. So um, you know it's, these are difficult questions. And and of course, as soon as you start to do something for Virgin, Qantas says, "Well, it'll put its hand up." You give Virgin one point four, we want four point two <laughs> billion dollars support. This is a difficult set of circumstances for a government. But I think in the end, they won't want to see Virgin fail. And, um, you know, it then becomes a question, if that's the case, what's the most effective way to support it through this process? But don't forget, most of the airlines in, a, in the world are quite marginal. You know, a lot of the US airlines have been in and out of Chapter 11, uh, almost uh, bordering on bankruptcy or, uh, you know, insolvency for, for many years, over many, many years. Um, so it's a difficult industry. It's a very low margin industry. It's a very competitive industry. Uh, but from Australia's point of view, we've always wanted to have at least a two-airline policy, a uh, two-airline structure, I should say, which gives us a some sort of um, uh, competitive, uh, some kind of competition that may, co- may overall keep fares down for the average Australian, the average businessman. Now, another big question, and one that you mentioned earlier, is the push to build a sustainable economy. Taking a kind of positive view, how could this crisis help Australia build that sustainable economy that, that we that we want and need? If we just take one sector, I mean, we've gone through the bushfires and we've gone through the drought and, uh, okay, they've passed and so the government interest in them has waned a bit and the media focus on them has, has, has certainly been subdued. But, uh, you know, the fundamental issue is there is how do we prepare better for that? At the same time, we also have to make a transition to a low-carbon society in this country by the middle part of the century. And agriculture can play a very big part in that. I mean, we, 
soil mismanagement has been a major feature of, of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And, um, you know, by adopting regenerative agriculture, and there's been a lot of evidence developed over many years by many experts, and it's all in front of the government, I think now it was certainly through the drought period, um, regenerative agriculture, which requires farmers basically uh, and pastoralists to, to change the way they operate at the margin, you know, to shallow till their soils, not use chemical fertilisers but organic fertilisers, um, uh, you know, uh, ch- rotate uh, crops and, and, and animals, uh, better management of land and land clearing and so on. These are all things that can actually improve the carbon content of the soil. And from a farmer's point of view, to the extent that they improve the carbon content of the soil, which these days can be measured, uh, they can generate a carbon credit, which can be sold. So they get an additional income stream so that it has a lot of benefits. It's a win-win sort of circumstance. It makes the soils more resilient to drought, more drought resistant. It improves the carbon content of the soil, so it reduces our emissions. In fact, in some some have argued you can get negative net emissions from this sort of reform of the agricultural sector. And the farmers getting these carbon credits gets an additional income stream. So rather than getting a welfare payment or a concessional loan to see through the drought, they've got another income stream which uh, it gives them a, 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 a natural cushion, a market-based cushion. So I think those sort of changes are realistic and they're very there's a lot of work being done over a lot of years with a lot of evidence produced. And in those circumstances, you know, the government uh, doesn't have to spend a lot of money to get that sort of process up and running. And uh, if it's a coordinated national strategy, put that through the, the uh, new national government, uh, we can make very significant progress in terms of emissions reductions and at the same time solve, um, improve our resilience to the drought and, and make farmers better off. So I would think this is a, this is a no-brainer. And that's just using one example, I guess, in, in terms of transport. The transition to electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles is going to happen. It's happening very fast in other parts of the world, including China and so on, where particular pollution is a major issue. I mean, we'd be smart to, uh, to think about some of the issues that may accelerate the process here because I guess when a, from a point of view of personal transport, as soon as a global car manufacturer produces an affordable electric vehicle, reliable and affordable electric vehicle, let's say thirty to $50,000 a year, everyone's going to have one. <laughs> and then we're going to have bigger issues about charging and, and impact on the tax system when you don't have petrol excise collected and, and so on. So you should be thinking about that, planning that. The UK has already embraced a pretty aggressive strategy, for example, in that regard. Uh, one of the earliest decisions of Boris Johnson was to accelerate that process to electric vehicles. It's happening all over Europe in terms of the transition to autonomous trucking and in the United States. These are areas which have just been put on the back burner in Australia, and at the same time we have the dirtiest fuel, second, the second dirtiest fuel in the OECD. Uh, you know, the particular emissions from fuel kill more people than the road toll in Australia. And we have no fuel security, so we can solve that problem too. We can move to biofuels and uh, and alternative fuels, clean up our fuel, um, put uh, tougher standards on it. I mean, Euro 6 emission standards, uh, uh, if applied to Australia, which have been delayed, I think, to about 2027, whereas New Zealand embraced them in 2018, um, that could make a very big difference to uh, pollution and to uh, emissions. And uh, and uh, inevitably so, but as long as we've got dirty petrol, we won't be able to run Euro 6 cars in this country, Euro 6 compliant cars. So these are issues, specific issues, 
Um, in other areas where there are opportunities that, you know, in waste, for example, we used to export a lot of our waste, yet technologies exist, of course, to recycle it and turn it into whatever, electricity, into uh, ethanol, into biodiesel, uh, and so on. And these are, why aren't we doing that when we don't have fuel security? We've got about 21 days of petrol. We rely on about 44 ships a year coming from Singapore. If they don't come, we've got a problem. Why not solve that problem in a very positive way right now? It doesn't take a lot to reset some of those standards and encourage the development of, of the biofuels industry. And, you know, Taylor, as a minister, has asked Arena to prepare a roadmap for the bioeconomy, bio bio, circular economy moving forward. They are thinking about it. You can accelerate that process, I think, and, uh, and start to deal with issues like waste which is a major issue for Australia, fuel security, major issue for Australia. So they're all positives. They're all going to give you new industries, new investment, new, new business, new jobs, you know, and um, in these circumstances, that's a very positive message to take out of, out of what is going to be a pretty difficult period in, in terms of our economy for the next few years. Finally, John, if it had been you uh, leading the government at this stage instead of Scott Morrison. What would be your sort of big picture wish list for what you want Australia's economy to look like coming out of this crisis? And, and what sort of advice would you be giving uh, policymakers within your government in terms of uh, achieving that now? You know, I, I commented uh, back in, I think, the 23rd of January that we should have locked down those flights coming from Wuhan and any others. Earlier lockdown would have reduced the problem even more. But looking forward, I think we need to have a national strategy for the emissions, for, for, for the transition to a low-carbon Australia by the middle part of the century, and that would involve working in each of the sectors, in the power sector, in the transport sector, in the agriculture sector, in buildings, industrial processes and so on, seeing what needs to be done, what can we do to facilitate that process, accelerate that process. And uh, they're all positives. And, uh, you know, more broadly, we've got issues about water security and food security and so on. All of those can be dealt with in that, in that sort of context. And I guess if you can't do that in a short-term political context, I'd establish a, a transition commission to a low-carbon society and uh, empower them to draw on the best evidence here and worldwide to develop a strategy sector by sector to make that transition to a net, at least net zero emissions by 2050. Um, more broadly, you need a national, um, I guess secondly, you would need a national productivity strategy where you'd say take a goal that we want to, let's pick a number, we want to double national productivity by, by 2025 or 2030 or whatever, and then go through each sector of public policy as to what do we need to do in education, higher education, training, uh, technology, um, health and uh, education and, and so on to achieve that objective. That's sort of what I advocated back in uh, the early 90s, uh, taking the year 2000 as an objective. Um, and, you know, what needs to be done to boost our national productivity in each of those areas and start that reform, that reform process. And I think that's a very significant opportunity. I mean, the pandemic itself, this virus, has, is really pretty much a dress rehearsal. For a lot of the other things that might come, uh, you know, some of the global risks we're running in terms of, uh, of climate change, for example, or a range of others. Um, and um, I've just recently, we've, a group of us have set up a commission for the human future looking at 
sort of 12, 10, a dozen, I should say, a dozen key risks that the globe faces over the next, uh, you know, for, for the next many years, uh, right now and well into the future. And trying to draw on the best evidence to elevate the significance of the science and the scientific evidence to provide better advice to government and so on. These are, these are changes that can be made. I'd obviously, in terms of specifics, uh, go to the tax and transfer system. Tax system is counter to, is counterproductive to what we've got to do. There are a lot of concessions, there are a lot of inequities, a lot of complexity. Um, take the opportunity to reform that and along with it, the transfer system. So in a whole range of areas, it calls for the op- gives you the opportunity to lead and I think the uh, the um, the scope to lead is very real, and there are a lot of people in the bureaucracy and and outside who are very keen to get on and get some of these things done, rather than just continuing to kick them down the road. On a personal level, John, you could have been prime minister. Um, do you look at the crisis and think, oh, thank God I managed to avoid that? Or would it have been something that you would have relished the opportunity to uh, uh, to, to be in a position to influence policy at that time? Well, I think it's always, you know, somebody who's been a bit of a public policy geek for 50 years, <laughs> you know, you do want to make progress, significant progress. And I've been very frustrated at how politics in the last three or four decades has become increasingly short-term and opportunistic and mostly negative, uh, populist and mostly negative. And that is a very significant disadvantage to a country like Australia. And, uh, you know, we tried to change that in the early 90s. It was seen as too too broad-based and uh, risky reform agenda. But I'd look back and see how much we would have, how we would have done things differently over time. I mean, nobody wants a crisis. And you shouldn't get to the position where you'd let things drift to become a crisis. And that says, you know, good government in a lot of my, a lot of ways to a lot of people is pretty dull and boring. You know, you're on there every day doing your job. You're out there prosecuting your case day in and day out for the sort of reform that needs to be done. None of that happens in a short-term political environment where, you know, you're just scoring points on each other or shifting the blame to the other side sort of thing. So I think, um, you know, that, that's been a frustration of mine since I left politics to see some of the big issues that I identified in my final speech still on the agenda and still still not being addressed and we've just drifted further and further away. And Okay, the, this crisis has given them an opportunity to say, well, let's, let's fix it. And, uh, you know, it is disruptive and it's been very disruptive and we're going to have to come out of it in a very different way. Um, and... Um, you know, it's, it, it is an opportunity that shouldn't be shouldn't be squandered this time. That sounds to me, John, like you're saying you would have relished the opportunity to uh, to tackle this. Oh, well, I think uh, it's always uh, you know if you get the opportunity to have an impact on public policy, you take it. We fought very hard in the '70s for deregulation and reform of the financial system. Started the snowball rolling. Didn't matter who there was a change of government, they were inevitably going to deregulate the financial system and float the currency and license foreign banks and and so on. And then that would put pressure on centralised wage determination and micro reform and uh, tariff protection and so on. And uh, that did result in uh, we were instrumental in that in the seventies. It did result in dramatic reform over the seventies, eighties, and early nineties. And then since then, it stalled. Well, John, thank you so much. It's been great to have you sharing your insights and your thoughts on some of the more positive things that might come out of this crisis and some of the challenges ahead. So thanks so much again for joining us, John. Thanks very much, Martin. 
Listeners, we're keen to hear what you thought of our discussion today. Please reach out to us on Twitter, where we are APPS Policy Forum, that's Apps Policy Forum, or send us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. But the best way to get in touch with us, of course, is through our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group. If you join us there, you'll get exclusive access to our Ask Policy Forum series, the podcast where you ask the questions. And actually, we need your questions now for the next episode of this members-only series. You can ask us anything from hard-hitting policy questions to our presenters' comfort food preferences while we're all here in our social isolation at home. So get your questions in there for episode three now. We're really excited to hear from you. And don't forget, part two of this podcast will be out tomorrow, where we'll be having a look at tackling some of the health inequities and how the COVID-19 crisis might actually be a catalyst for tackling some of those. And we'll also be talking about some of the governance issues that have sprung up from the crisis and what positive change might come out of that. And don't forget to subscribe to us. Policy Forum Pod is out every week on Friday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite pod episodes from. And if you have some time to spare, please also leave us a quick review. We're always keen to hear what you think of the podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with part two of this special Policy Forum Pod. But until then, stay home, stay healthy, and cheerio for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.